0: Oh, and welcome to Old News, our monthly roundup of the newest, oldest stuff from archaeology and anthropology. This time to make up for the lapse in your feeds—sorry,
1: we're very sorry—we've got an extended, an XL version <laughs> for you. So we're just gonna jump right on in with da, da, da. a Viking drinking a. hall in Scotland <laughs> and a small dog. In, oh no, she's in been Virginia. Sleeping.
0: Oh. <laughs> oh. I, I sense she's, that microphones are on.
1: Yeah. She's like, oh, thank God. I've got all these balls to choose from right now. I
0: have so many noises to Maybe, make.
1: Oh, I'm going to choose the smallest one and knock it under the couch immediately and then freak out. Great. Well,
0: stay well, tuned, listeners. Uh,
1: <laughs> archaeologists have unearthed what they believe to be a Viking, quote, drinking hall, end quote, at the 19th century scale <laughs> farmstead on the island of Oh, Lusay. you transported me to Scotland there.
0: <laughs> I just I thought I should say every letter in that yeah. word. <laughs> Somehow you added uh, like three extra Ls, I don't know.
1: Well, I just want to, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> take what you need from yeah. that word. <laughs> Dating to the 10th through 12th century CE, the stone-walled building appears to be at least 3 meters long and is oriented down a slope towards the 3 sea. meters is
0: not <laughs> big. Not big. No. <laughs> okay. Like when you Just looking around my apartment. Yeah, well, like,
1: it's just, if you big. think about
0: drinking hall, I think of sort of a more cavernous structure. But that's I don't a know. Shed. Have you been?
1: Have you been in? Um, what is it? Heinold's?
0: No, I don't know what that is. On, it's it's a little bar that
1: is on in Jack London Square. It's where Jack London drank, and it's like a old timey bar okay. that's preserved. So it's, okay, and so it's. Time. Okay. <laughs> you just go in, and someone's like, We're cash only. And you're like, Oh, cool. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Stone benches line each side of the interior, a feature that bolsters the researcher's identification of its function. Um, presumably, because no one sits other places. <laughs> According to the Orkneyinga saga, a historical account of the Orkney Islands, Westness was home to Sigurd, a powerful Norse chieftain who ruled during the 12th century. Um Sigurd comes up a
0: lot, so maybe there's just one super super busy
1: viking named Sigurd. I think
0: it was like Jim, you know. It was the the Norse version of Jim. Yeah. Okay. Um, Norse Jim.
1: Um excavation co-director Ingrid Mainland. This is so good. Oh, here we go. Ingrid Mainland of the University of the Highlands and Islands. Highlands and
0: Islands.
1: <laughs> Says, quote, We have recovered a millennium of middens which will allow us an unparalleled opportunity to look at changing dietary traditions, farming, and fishing practices from the Norse period up until the nineteenth century. End quote. Um, and I said midden, not mitten. <laughs> <laughs>
0: the millennium of mittens. <laughs>
1: it's, it's probably also under my couch. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, thus trash. far,
1: artifacts recovered include pottery, soapstone, a bone with spindle whorl, <laughs> and fragment of a bone comb. Yeah. A comb made yeah, of bones for combing your bones. Combing them bones. <laughs> um, so we do know that. On this island over the course of a millennium, they combed their hair and spun their wool and sat and drank things. Yeah. What more do you need?
0: Okay. Well maybe, maybe some bread? Something.
1: Something yeah, yeah, well that
0: what a great segue. <laughs> okay. Um, so this is a story about ancient Egyptian yeast, and I, I love it, and it involves Twitter in, a, in an entirely wholesome way, which we always need more of. So, an avocational Egyptologist and baking enthusiast has successfully baked a loaf of bread using yeast from ancient Egyptian ceramics. Seamus Blackley and his collaborators, archaeologist Serena Love and microbiologist Richard Bowman, managed to non-invasively extract dormant yeast from the pores of Egyptian beer and bread-making vessels held in the collections of the Museum of Fine Arts Boston and Harvard University's Peabody Museum. Next steps involved identifying the strains of yeast and feeding them nutrients in order to revive them. Finally, using water and ancient grains he had milled himself from barley and einkorn Blackley was able to cultivate a starter and bake a bread he believes may be close to that enjoyed by ancient Egyptians over 5,000 years ago. So I first saw this story on Twitter because um, it got retweeted a bunch and it was just a tweet thread of his progress and photos. So I'm going to share those tweets. So here's that Twitter thread. Using careful technique, UV sterilizers, autoclaved tools and containers and sterilized freshly milled barley and einkorn flour, I awoke and fed the sample organisms. Although this sample surely contains contaminants, it also likely contains actual yeast strains. Next tweet. Today, after a week of feeding and careful culling, the sample was bubbly and ready to try baking with. All the grains used here are ancient, organic, and milled fresh, barley and einkorn and kamut. Modern wheat was invented long after these organisms went to sleep. Next tweet. This crazy ancient dough fermented and rose beautifully. Here it is in the basket just before being turned out to bake. The ancient Egyptians didn't bake like this, you'll see. But I need to get a feel for all this, so I'm going conventional for now. Next tweet. And here is the result. The scoring is the hieroglyph representing the T sound, which is a loaf of bread. The aroma is amazing and new. It's much sweeter and more rich than the sourdough we are used to. It's a big difference. After this cools, we will taste. And then the final tweet. The crumb is light and airy, especially for a 100% ancient grain loaf. The aroma and flavor are incredible. I'm emotional. It's really different, and you can easily tell even if you're not a bread nerd. This is incredibly exciting, and I'm so amazed that it worked. Isn't that nice? Also, there was one last tweet. Um, this is so nice. Just like a plate with some food on it, and then like a couple slices of bread, and it was just like my wife has been destroying this loaf, and then it made some nerdy Egyptian joke about her being Sekhmet or something. <laughs> whoever the destroyer god is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like oh, <"Aw."> just, <laughs> just nerds. Oh,
1: gosh, yeah, nerd love.
0: <laughs> Speaking Aww. of love. The summer of... Le- I'm just... Okay. Yeah, I'm the trying to thereof. stay on okay. the Segway chain. Um,
1: yeah. Uh, we got some Woodstock archaeology. <clears throat> I'm going to read to you from time. <laughs> Da-da-da. Da-da-da-da-da. Yep. Da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> really thought no, you were going to, like, no, come I'm in there, but... Let you go. Just- just just me, alone out here. Alone in time. <laughs> well, <laughs> most people were pleased in the summer of 1969 at how quickly the debris was cleared away following that summer's Woodstock Music and Arts Festival in upstate New York. When half a million people descend on a single 600-acre farm in the midst of a hot, rainy, muddy August, you can expect a mess. But the town and the concert promoters made quick work of all that returning the farm to owner Max Yazgar in more or less the same state in which they found it. Half a century on, not everyone is happy about all the post festival tidying. What starts off as trash can become priceless artifacts and more that's left to be buried and preserved for decades or centuries or millennia, the more descendant generations can learn about the ones that came before. But that's not to say the Woodstock site, which isn't in Woodstock at all, but 46 miles away in Bethel, was left absolutely pristine. As part of a team developing Reconstructed Trail Network, and art installation timed for the 50th anniversary of the concert, archaeologist O'Donovan and her team, under the sponsorship of the Museum at Bethel Woods and the Bethel Woods Center for the Arts, have done impressive work learning what they can about the concert site from the little bit that's left. O'Donovan and her team located a post marker for a fence that surrounded the stage. Working from aerial photos and old concert maps, they were able to begin at that point and frame the area that held the stage. Their work was made especially challenging since, unlike the rest of the 600 acres, which have retained their original topography, the site of the stage has been altered. Um, O'Donovan was quoted saying, there was another concert there since, and you can see the evidence of grading and filling. Uh, that was what? Woodstock? Ninety, was it ninety nine or ninety four? I don't know. I think it was ninety nine because they were like Party doing like, like it's nineteen ninety nine round number thing. No, because no, it was the summer. Season, uh, 30 think, so Okay. Yeah, okay. Today, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know though. <clears throat> um, she also says, "quote Archaeologists study humans and try to interpret the past for material remains. Those remains are constantly being disp- deposited." End quote. 50 years is a nanosecond in the arc of history, and the four days of the Woodstock Music and Arts Festival were a tinier flicker there still. But it was a flicker that helped define the nation at a turbulent moment, and its cultural marks, like its stacks of stones and abandoned pool tabs, remain. Yeah, Yeah. one of my friends was up there um, oh, yeah? recently uh, to, like, observe Neat. the... Yeah.
0: It's, um... I yeah. was teaching a class recently about... Uh, the various legislation that is in place to protect American archaeology and the National Register of Historic Places came up. and so I had a screen grab from the website to explain what that was. and Woodstock was like the featured site on the yeah, yeah, it's yeah. historic now, <laughs> much to um, our parents' generation's chagrin, I'm sure. Um, okay, so this yeah um, this next story is is very uh, poignant. Uh, Which is kind of a shame because In any other circumstances The name of this ship would be very silly But okay so um, The USS Grunyon went missing About a month after it departed On its first war patrol in 1942 Incidentally um, a Grunyon is a fish In case you were wondering It's a sardine Yeah It wasn't seen again until the sons of the Gronians' commanding officer began searching for it and found the wreckage in 2007 off the coast of the Aleutian Islands. Now, the submarine's bow has also been identified about a quarter mile from the main wreckage, according to Tim Taylor of the Lost 52 Project, which searches for sunken World War II submarines. In October 2018, the Lost 52 project team returned to the site of the main wreck and found that the ship's bow had slid down a steep volcanic embankment. They put together a 3D scan of the bow and presented it to the family of USS Grunion's commanding officer, Lieutenant Commander Manert L. Abilé. Uh, and Taylor says, quote, When we brought it back to the family, it opened up so much more understanding of what happened and why it sank and what happened to the submarine, end quote. The vessel rests at about 3,200 feet underwater. Cold temperatures and lack of significant currents have preserved most of the ship. And so that Lost 52 project is named for the 52 U.S. Pacific Fleet submarines that the Navy reports lost during World War II. And more than 3,500 submariners remain on eternal patrol, which just like, oh, mm. my heart. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean... It's a, a really meaningful project, um, so I'm glad that they yeah, found that. Yeah,
1: and this is another in sort of an ongoing series of, of stories about folks trying to find closure yeah. for um, like combat losses family members and, yeah. that have, yeah that have been lost in in previous conflicts. Yeah.
0: Well, let's move on to something a little bit more
1: festive. Yeah, let's go to France. France. Um, this is from Science Daily. With the help of an extensive genetic database from modern grapevines, researchers were able to test and compare twenty-eight archaeological seeds from French sites dating back to the Iron Age,
0: l'âge du fer,
1: Roman era, and medieval
0: period. (laughs) Oh, nothing there, l'âge romain. Well, no, because I just just le moyen âge. I've
1: had to I've had to read a lot of stuff in French, about the Iron Age. L'âge <laughs> du fer. So ah. I just, like, think of that every time. It's um, like,
0: amino acids, the building blocks of life. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's that um, Yeah, l'âge du fer and le chameau plastique. <laughs> wait, wait, what? <laughs> Plastic camels? Like ceramic. Ceramic. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I... Honk. What I remember. Okay. <laughs> Salut. <laughs> Salut um, utilizing similar ancient DNA methods used in tracing human ancestors, um the methods for ancient DNA, not the methods themselves are ancient. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's not like plink 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 A, plink 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 C. <laughs> <laughs> A team of researchers from the UK, Denmark, France, Spain, and Germany drew <laughs>
0: Send me a gif of them genetic connections.
1: (laughs) Oh, man. True genetic connections between seeds from different archaeological sites, as well as links to modern-day grape varieties. It has long been suspected that some grape varieties grown today, particularly well-known types like Pinot Noir, have an exact genetic match with plants grown 2,000 years ago or more. But until now, there's been no way of genetically testing an uninterrupted genetic lineage of that age. Dr. Nathan Wales from the University of York, said, quote, from our sample of grape seeds, we found 18 distinct genetic signatures, including one set of genetically identical seeds from two Roman sites separated by more than four, 600 kilometers and dating back 2,000 years ago. These genetic links, which included a sister relationship with varieties grown in the alpine regions today demonstrate winemakers proficiencies across history and managing their vineyards with modern techniques such as asexual reproduction through taking plant cuttings yep end quote one archaeological grape seed excavated from a medieval site in orleans in central france was genetically identical to sauvignon blanc not not Sauvignon Yeah, Blanc. it's
0: S-A-V-A-G-N-I-N. It's Savagnin.
1: Savagnin Blanc. Savagnin Blanc. Oh, boy. Attorney at law.
0: <laughs> Sorry, all um, of France. <laughs> <sighs> That's a great show, though. This Savagnin fall Blanc. TNT.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this means the variety has grown for at least 900 years as cuttings from just one ancestral That's plant. wild. Which is bonkers this variety is thought to have been popular for a number of centuries but is not as commonly consumed as a wine today outside of its local region the uh, the grape can still be found growing in the Ajura, Jura yeah, Jura yeah. region of France where it is used to produce expensive bottles of vanjon yeah yellow yellow wine. yep yep <laughs> as well as in parts of Central Europe where it often goes by the name Traminer.
0: <laughs> Traminer. I don't know. Well, give yeah. us Traminer. Yeah. It's like, so I think it's, Tram- I think it's German. Yeah. Traminer. Yeah. Mm, I don't know. I think it's... Traminer. Traminer. Traminer.
1: Anyway. Vengeance. As this grape was not so well known today, 900 years of a genetically identical plant suggests that this wine was special. Special enough for grape growers to stick it with a cross, to stick with... <laughs> oh boy grape growers to stick with it across centuries of changing political regimes and agricultural advancements.
0: Yeah. Where was I oh I was listening to a different podcast where uh, there was wine involved and they were describing a, a Sauvignon, not Sauvignon, and it was uh, it has a nice minerality to it, pairs well with I don't know, spicy foods. Probably because like a paella. Like spice okay. heavily not like like very flavorful foods, not like Thai curries. And so well, actually. I don't know. Mm, wine. It's nine thirty in the morning here.
1: I don't know. <laughs> it could be gross with a Thai curry because if you've got like seafoods, because of the way that yeah fish sauce the molecules yeah stick together and make make bad. Mm. Well, we'll have to try it out. Gosh, I'm glad our Somali my sommelier friend is not <laughs> <laughs> a Patreon supporter. Does, yeah, oh.
0: this is for that's any, that's any that's of those sommeliers <laughs> out there. Sorry, it makes makes bad. It makes bad taste mouth. Ew. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) let's let's move on to speaking of things that leave a bad taste in your mouth. Yeah, speaking of yes, boy. Uh, Speaking of (laughs) minerality, uh, another older shipwreck, the best preserved shipwreck ever found from the age of Christopher Columbus and Vasco da Gama, has been discovered at the bottom of the Baltic Sea between Sweden and Estonia. The newly discovered Baltic Mary Celeste is also at the heart of a five hundred year old maritime mystery. <laughs> virtually pristine condition.
1: Uh gotta get saving in blank
0: on the, <laughs> on the case. <laughs> don't don't <laughs> in virtually pristine condition the vessel has been located by archaeologists at a depth of around more than a depth of around more than cool. 120 meters, <laughs> some hundred miles southeast of Stockholm. Incidentally, this is from the Independent.co.uk, which might explain some of the typos. Some ninety-nine percent of the ship coming in hot is intact. The Independent hot takes with the masts still standing tall and its two swivel guns in their firing positions. A small tender boat, as in it tends oh. to the larger ship. Not that it is soft and emotionally vulnerable is still sitting on the deck as is the wooden capstan even the bilge pump and elements of the rigging can be seen the bowsprit and decorated transom stern are also clearly visible I feel very nautical so many nautical terms bowsprit, transom it's about it's about boats I know, I just I like these words however, okay, <laughs> these 16 meter long vessels aft castle had somehow been destroyed ow, my aft castle
1: <laughs> what a pain in the aft castle
0: <laughs> Oh I, I claim that I claim that for us
1: <laughs>
0: This Wait, I gotta mail it to us Okay <laughs> yeah. Done. TM, TM, TM This destroyed aft castle Together with the ship's <laughs> cannons being in their Ready to fire positions Strongly suggests That the ship was sunk in a previously unknown naval battle. Probably a small Swedish or Danish merchantman, as in the the ship was a merchantman, referring to the fact that it was owned by a merchantman. The vessel was almost certainly built at some stage between 1490 and 1540, most likely in the very early 16th century. It is therefore conceivable that it was sunk during Sweden's War of Independence, the three-years-long conflict between that country and its Danish rulers, which raged between 1521 and 1523. Alternatively, the vessel may have been sunk during the Russo-Swedish War of 1554 to 1557. Remember uh, in the Rudbeck episode where I described yeah, the war that – Yeah, when I didn't that, know that existed. <laughs> yeah, these are other wars <laughs> that we didn't know existed. Huh. The discovery will therefore help maritime archaeologists and historians to understand more fully some of the ship technologies available to Columbus for his I mean yeah for his great 1492 voyage of discovery. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> what happened to the crew of the Baltic ship is a complete mystery. Were all or most of them killed in the attack, which destroyed the ship's aft castle? Were they captured by the attacking vessel? Or did they survive the attack, but were somehow unable to launch their tender and co- consequently went down with their ship? I mean, yeah. So the fact that, you know, the guns are ready to fire, but the, the ship, the like basically the lifeboat is still on the deck is interesting. The investigation of the newly discovered ship is being carried out by an international team of scientists, including archaeologists from the University of Southampton. The whole project is being led by Dr. Rodrigo Pacheco Ruiz, a maritime archaeologist working for the Swedish offshore survey company MMT, in collaboration with the Center for Maritime Archaeology at the University of Southampton and the Marine Archaeology Research Institute of Södertörn University in Sweden. Maritime Archaeology Research Institute. What did I say? Marine.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. Maritime. Not bad. Although if we were doing marine archaeology of like dolphin culture. Oh jeez.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Miss me with that. Yeah. <laughs> Ugh, hard. Um up next, newfoundland petroglyphs. Hey. Yes. Nailed it. Um Got it. and this is from the CBC. The sea beebs. The sea Beebs, yep. A small set of petroglyphs the size of an outstretched hand was carved possibly hundreds of years ago into what is today a rocky lichen-covered crevice in
0: eastern Newfoundland. i got to close my window. There's a child yelling.
1: Now, archaeologists and the chief of Newfoundland and Labrador's Mi'kmaq First Nation are seeking provincial protection for the recently unearthed petroglyphs, which appear to be the first indigenous carvings discovered on the island of Newfoundland, according to those studying them. Well, they would know. The, car- <laughs> they would. <laughs> the carvings, found by local resident near Conception Bay North, in the fall of 2017 show two human figures and one animal like figure. The fertility motifs are characteristic of other carvings by Algonquin speaking peoples that have been found in Northeastern North America. Um, uh, chief missile Joe who visited the site about a month ago said by phone that he, that the site of the carving stirred exciting questions of who may have carved them and why he said he felt an urge to preserve them. Um, describing his visit, um, as follows, quote, it was almost like a spiritual thing, an emotional thing at the same time. I didn't want to leave there, almost like I wanted to protect it, end quote. Um, Joe said he was excited when he first saw photos of the carvings, but nothing compared to standing in front of them. Um, He goes on to say, quote, we've been searching around Newfoundland for the longest time for burial sites, uh, but never thought to look for, never ever thought to look for petroglyphs. I'm sure they're around, end quote. The carvings originate from the period after Europeans first arrived in Newfoundland. Galton,
0: uh, sorry, I forgot. I forgot Archaeologist
1: Galton yeah. said, uh, judging from the Roman type lettering above the pictures and the fact that a metal tool like a knife was used to make them, the weathered carvings have not yet been dating, but have not yet been dated. But Galton said they could originate anywhere from the 1600s through the 1800s. Uh, the images, including what looks like a vulva and figures of a man and pregnant woman, contain similar motifs to those observed in petroglyphs found in Nova Scotia, Ontario, and Maine, attributed to Al- Algonquin peoples like the Mi'kmaq, who are among the original inhabitants of Canada's Atlantic provinces.
0: Yeah. That's neat. Okay. Yeah. This is kind of a twofer because this yes. it was this story and then I wanted to also cover... A related story that the internet had a tiny hissy fit about. Yep. Okay, so. Because internet, kind of internet. Yep. Okay, so this first one uh, is from Live Science, and it's the burial of a couple in Kazakhstan. The bodies of a man and woman who died 4,000 years ago have been found buried face-to-face in a grave in Kazakhstan. Archaeologists discovered the burial in an ancient cemetery. That's where you would discover that. That has remains of well, humans. I don't know. In a minute,
1: we'll discover where else you can discover things. Yeah, well,
0: That has remains of humans and horses, Kazakhstan archaeologists said in a Kazakh language statement. The man and woman were buried with a variety of grave goods that included jewelry, some of which was gold, knives, ceramics, and beads. And then the remains of horses were also found near the burial. While some media reports claim that the archaeologists also found the burial of a priestess nearby, the archaeologists made no mention of this in their statement. Uh, The statement says that the pair is young, but it doesn't give an age range. It's not clear what killed the man and woman or their exact relationship to each other. The rich burial goods suggest that the man and woman came from wealthy families, um, and archaeological remains found at other sites in Kazakhstan suggest that the pair lived at a time when fighting and conflicts occurred frequently in the region excavation of the cemetery and analysis of the remains are ongoing so mostly i wanted to talk about this one because of this story that came a little bit later also uh reported from live science in other words calm down internet this is so this is the uh story about the lovers of modena Two 1,600-year-old skeletons that were found holding hands inside their grave, and new research has revealed that they were both male. So there are few known examples in the ancient world of skeletons buried holding hands, and most of those pairs that have been found have been male-female and not same-sex. So these skeletons were assumed to be a male and a female when they were first found. They were unearthed in an ancient cemetery in 2009, and they attracted media attention because of their seemingly romantic death poses, which earned the skeletons the amorous nickname, the lovers of Modena. But archaeologists couldn't determine the sexes of the perished lovers because of the poor condition of the skeletons. However, a team of scientists has now analyzed the skeleton's tooth enamel and identified both skeletons as male, and this was reported uh, September 11th in the journal Scientific Reports. In the study, the scientists found that both skeletons' teeth had a protein called amylogenin isoform Y, which is found only in Why not? Why not? <laughs> yes. yeah, nailed it. Nailed it. Yep. Which is found only in the enamel of males. And so the researchers say: quote, We suggest that the lovers of Modena burial represent a voluntary expression of commitment between two individuals. They, end quote, and the researchers added they do not know if the commitment was romantic. And then the internet had a meltdown because it can't be two dudes. And so the reporting was like, no, they were two soldiers who died together in combat like soldier bros. Or it was like, no, they were brothers or cousins. Or It's like, it's okay. They could just be two, two men. They might love each other. It's okay, yeah. everyone.
1: well... And also, like, oh, God. I do, uh, Calm down, internet. Yeah, just like, put your tweets down. Well, yeah, put those tweets away. And, like, I'm not, like, not coming from a, like, a no homo place here, but, like, it could have not been romantic. Sure. Because all of these could not, could have been not romantic. Yeah. And, like, why must society, like, sexualize everything?
0: Well, they they were holding hands, but so,
1: yeah, I hold hands with my dog. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So I'm just like, I'm just, uh, no, I get it. (laughs) It's a nice story. It's very, it's very sweet. I
0: mean, it's a a, a nice story. Except for the part where they died, but yeah.
1: I mean, we're all getting there. Yeah. All right.
0: This next one's short.
1: Yeah. Short and shocking. A statue was discovered in a museum an ancient sculpture of alexander the great was recently discovered in a greek museum storage room and so this was reported on facebook (laughs) well it was Um, no it was it was like it was on like the greek reporter but a an archaeologist posted a story story
0: on facebook yeah
1: okay um The sculptural portrait of the Macedonian king had been forgotten for years in the warehouses of the Archaeological Museum in the town of Veria in northern Greece. This so-called... What? I just said whoopsies. This so-called brand new portrait of Alexander (laughs) the Great um, is unknown to archaeologists and historians. But known to Facebook. Um, Yeah, The sculpture sculpture was first discovered decades ago in rubble near the town of Veria. The priceless object was basically discovered all over again just a few weeks ago as staff were cleaning the storage room of the museum.
0: Yep, I mean that this keeps happening, which it's kind of fun. Like especially, you know, you hear about natural history museums and somebody opens a drawer and finds a new species. Like, oh,
1: yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, I like that, but I think this is also. I've been reading this book. This book about (laughs) the problem is I read a book. no, I just it makes me mad, and so I just sit there and scowl on the metro uh, more than usual. <laughs> but it's you should smile. A more. book about Alexander in Afghanistan, and it was written. Oh God, it was written at about the time that we invaded Afghanistan, uh. and it's written from this perspective of like. Man, it's always been whack here. And it's just, like, super orientalist and problematic. And it just, like, takes all these Greek sources at face value, grump, grump, which grump. is... Yeah. And so I'm just like, God, this guy. It's overrated. You heard it here first. Alexander the Great. Overrated. Yeah. Yeah. Well. <laughs> all so, right. I'm glad that most of the people that worked at that museum agreed with me. <laughs>
0: Put them in a drawer. It's fine. Ugh. All right. Uh... Next, we have some sports, sort of. The grave of a sports fan. The skeleton of an ancient sports fan, presumably, was discovered along an 1800-year-old jar shaped like the head of a wrestler or boxer who may have had his nose broken, archaeologists reported. Uh, so this is reported from Live Science again. The spectacular balsamarium, which is a jar used to store liquids, such as balms or perfumes, was found in a grave mm. in southeastern like Bulgaria. Yeah. Like Yeah. Uh, yeah, you got to have your jar full of tiger balm. Yeah. There we go. That's what it's called. Oh, it's also...
1: There, Bengay is the same thing. I know, but I was trying to remember, like, I don't know. It was like, it's like, the jar with the tiger on it. It's got a balm in it. Good job, Amber. Yay! <laughs> Tiger balsamarium. Yep,
0: this tiger balsam dates to a time when the Roman Empire controlled Thrace, an ancient area that encompassed parts of Bulgaria, Greece, and Turkey. Examples of balsamariums that have similar features, such as a crooked or bent nose, have been found elsewhere in the Roman Empire and are often interpreted as depicting boxers or wrestlers. Correction, it's a balsamaria, but they are balsamaria. Oh, Yeah, they are. You're right. Balsamaria. The feline cap worn by the man may be an allusion to a Nemean lion, a creature that the Greek god Heracles fought and defeated. He was a demigod, whatever, according to ancient mythology. The archaeologists wrote in their paper, quote, it is probable that the representation of the athlete's cap as the skin of a savage feline was meant to suggest the athlete's similarity to Hercules, and in this way, to signify the heroic power and courage possessed by the athlete. Which is just like, look at my kitty hat! Yeah. Meow! <laughs> <laughs> mm. <laughs> This is very fierce. The skeleton that was also found in the grave belonged to a man who had died when he was about 35 to 40 years old. Also buried with the remains, the team found a strigil, a metal blade used to scrape sweat and dirt from the skin, which... Didn't you see one of those for sale on Wish I just, I was about to say, Wish wanted to sell me a strigil recently. I was like, cool, thanks, I shower. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah. You know... You gotta exfoliate. I know, and you know what I was thinking, um... Would everyone in ancient Greece and and sort of that area, would everyone just have smelled kind of faintly of rancid salad dressing? I think they would have, and that's upsetting.
1: Anyway. That's that's what upsets you. Among
0: other things. The researchers don't think this was the grave of an athlete, but rather of a local aristocrat who was a big sports enthusiast, so kind of like a sports superfan today being buried with the bobblehead of their favorite player. So he had like a a jar with his favorite wrestlers uh, dumb like, mug on bury it bury me in my my man cave <laughs> bro <laughs> oh uh, let's move um, to something sweet and very very wholesome cute. oh my goodness this is so cute this is about ancient sippy cups i know <laughs> <laughs> also um, really just makes me want a sippy cup I'm fully regressing I know, right oh i love it yeah it's the one way I don't spill on myself. Oh, yeah. You need one of those, like, gyroscopic ones that you cannot physically <laughs> knock over. That's what I need, like, in my office. Yeah. Do you know they sell that? <laughs> it's, um like, a, a thing that you put your coffee cup on, and then you can carry it down the hall, and it, it is counterweighted in such a way that it oh won't – like, it, it mirrors your moves. Like, if you move – it's oh. like a gimbal, like a gimbal for your coffee cup. And it – I – if I got one of those, I feel like somebody would like stuff me into a lock. <laughs> yeah, they absolutely would. But I at just my... I just need you to know that that exists.
1: Oh, God. I'll send you I'll okay. find a well, link and send it to I you If I get later. stuffed in the server closet,
0: at work, <laughs> we know why I
1: got one and they're like, oh, nerd, um, as if they don't already yell that at me. Babies and young children drank from clay sippy cups during the Bronze Age and L'Age du And (laughs) the the practice may have existed as early as 7,000 years ago, a new study reveals. That's old. That's a while back. Yep. These spouted artifacts have been found at archaeological sites across Europe, first appearing in the Neolithic period and becoming more common. Later. (laughs) More common, according to (laughs) the study. Um... The researchers suspect that they were used for for feeding babies and toddlers. Um, but some think that it could also have been used for adults who were sick, injured, or elderly. Why not both? Why not both? Um, to settle the question, okay, <laughs> that's why. <laughs> the study authors <laughs> analyzed vessels from children's graves in what is now Germany to identify what they once held. The researchers found residue of animal milk fat, suggesting that the vessels held milk that was fed to feed that was fed to young children to supplement breastfeeding or to help with weaning.
0: (laughs) I was just thinking, like, mommy's tired. Have goat milk.
1: Yeah. Um, The researchers examined three vessels from the graves of very young children. Um, The eldest was no more than six years old, according to the study. Two of the graves were in a cemetery dating from 800 BCE to 450 BCE, and one grave, a cremation burial, was found in a necropolis dating from 1200 BCE to 800 BCE. Um, archaeologists typically look for ancient organic residues by grinding up small pieces of broken pottery. Uh, there are often thousands at any given site <laughs> and then chemically analyzing the powder. The chemical signature determines what kind of material was stored in the pottery. However, testing small whole objects without damaging them is a lot trickier for this study. The scientists carefully swabbed the insides of the vessels, collecting grains of loose powder, uh, fatty acids in the residue from the younger vessels hinted that their milk came from ruminants. Um, those being animals that chew their cud, such as cows, sheep, or goats. Mm-hmm. Um, the older cup held milk that came from non-ruminants, perhaps human or pig milk, uh, the study authors reported. I And then Anna heard a thing. Well, what, what, I got I up? didn't
0: look this up, and I should have, but I remember learning that pig milk can make, if you drink pig milk, it can make you violently sick. Like humans. Did you learn
1: that from like a like a witch in the woods? Like what is
0: this? No, I learned it from a guy in South Africa. um, Who was like, "Don't milk that pig." Well, no, it was he was talking about how it, and you know he may have been not telling me the truth, but like pig milk is sometimes used as a means of treating addiction. So like you associate a substance that you want to quit. Like you, you do a thing that you want to quit and then you drink pig mm-hmm. milk and it the reaction to it is so violent. It makes you so sick that it then creates the association of that feeling with whatever you want to – with the behavior that you want to quit. Okay. Yeah. So, like so it's like, like a – Aversion therapy or whatever Yeah, exactly. Aversion therapy. Yeah. So uh, – and I did not follow this up with any kind of research, but it's a thing I heard. So it's really interesting to me then that the researchers thought it might be pig milk because – Maybe that's not true. Maybe maybe you can drink pig milk. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah.
1: But could a child have comfortably used one of these cups? i love this part. Oh, oh, my God. To find out, the researchers reconstructed one of the vessels in the study, filled it with diluted applesauce, <laughs> and handed it to an eager one-year-old. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> um. The one of the researchers was quoted as saying, he cupped it in his hands and started suckling from it, and he loved it. <laughs> There's something intuitive for a baby about the shape. The cups all have the same basic shape that you'd hold between your hands. And they're very sweet. Well, they're also these it's rounded like animal a, shapes. Well, it's, uh, it's a rounded thing with a nipple on yeah. it. Yeah. So yep. I mean, yep, it's intuitive. Yep.
0: <laughs> Babies know what to do with that. All right. Next let's get a little spooky. It's Yeah, last it is Spooktober. And this is this definitely oh. has some Claude Holland vibes um yes. <laughs> and also the the writing of this article which again is from live science is just mwah. okay is this is is this
1: month brought to you by live science did you just like keep clicking at the bottom of the page <laughs> being like you may also like
0: no well no, like, i do Life science has like a monthly readout of like here are the big stories in archaeology so that's one of the places that i typically go to find stuff for old news and oh, interesting. the the harvest was bountiful at Live Science this month. Okay, interesting. Some say that two heads are better than one, but a grave in the Scottish Highlands dating to the 15th century held several heads. Too many. <laughs> Archaeologists counted six skulls in the grave when it was uncovered in 1997. At Sim- now, you didn't say that right. How many did they count? Six. Six. Uh, six uh, skulls. Uh. There we go. There we go. Sorry, Count von Count. (sighs) Archaeologists counted six. Six skulls. Ah, ah, ah. In the grave when it was uncovered in 1997 at St. Coleman's Church in the fishing village of Port Mahomick. Buried inside were two complete male skeletons and four additional skulls. (laughs) Bonus. This highly unusual six-headed burial likely held powerful members of a local clan. Now... Researchers are offering a glimpse at one of those men may have looked like in life. Forensic experts recently reconstructed the craggy, freckled face of an occupant of that crowded grave, creating a highly detailed and glowering visage that included a generous ginger neckbeard. Okay, this is (laughs) rude. I mean, they're not wrong. I've seen the picture. Between 1994 and 2007, archaeologists at the site excavated 88 skeletons belonging to men, women, and children. One group of bodies dated to between the 13th and 14th centuries, and another group was laid to rest during the 15th and 16th centuries, according to a report published in 2016 by the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland. Okay. Yeah. Well, initially, the grave held just one complete skeleton, which lay on its back, that of a man who had suffered terrible sword wounds to his face. Sword to the face! In fact, ooh, uh, skip forward a, a couple seconds if you are squeamish, one of his injuries was so dire that it had nearly separated the man's jaw from his head. Four skulls, without their lower jaws, were arranged in the grave around the man's head, though researchers don't know if these belonged to family, friends, or foes of the man. Then, and according to the researchers, this was, quote, perhaps a generation later, end quote, the coffin was opened and the body of another man was added. The skull of the first man was moved to the foot of the coffin to make way for the second man's head, which was then also surrounded by the extra skulls. So, no idea what was going on there. Yeah, wow. Crowded
1: coffin. Wow. Well, if the guy who wrote that book about Alexander the Great in Afghanistan had his hand at this, he would say that people have been doing weird stuff with burials in Scotland.
0: For like four thousand years, I don't know if he would be wrong. Though people have been doing weird stuff, oh, like it's... Iron Age Britain. First of all, something,
1: something in their nature. Something, oh something. dear, oh dear. The Soviets. Oh no.
0: Okay. Well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right. Next, anti book club. Next, more from the Indus Valley. Wee. Coming back. Ancient DNA evidence reveals that the people of the mysterious and complex Indus Valley civilization are genetically linked to modern South Asians today. So, that settles that question at the end of our... (laughs) Deep cuts, (laughs) Aryans. Deep cuts. Yep. Um, Great. The same gene sequences... um, we should have done this in any hey, hey, give me Hey, give me a gene sequence real quick. A-T-C-G-E-F-G. Wait, no. Oh, no. I was talking about like texts
0: from your dad. Oh, a gene sequence. <laughs> yeah. that. Oh, that is a name for texts from my dad. Oh, my dad's name is Gene. <laughs> I feel like I should clear that up. It's not that my dad sends me messages encoded in nitrogenous bases. Oh, my God. <laughs> he would. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past him. <laughs> you can't spell very much except for like cat and tag and act. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: The same gene sequences drawn from a single individual who died nearly 5,000 years ago and was buried in a cemetery near Rahigari, India, also suggest that the Indus Valley developed farming independently without major migrations from neighboring farming regions. It's the first time an individual from the ancient Indus Valley civilization has yielded any DNA information whatsoever, enabling researchers to link this civilization both to its neighbors and to modern humans. Gathering ancient DNA from the Indus Valley is an enormous challenge because of the hot, humid climate, um, which tends to degrade DNA rapidly. Mm -hmm. Um, So... The, one of the researchers here, um, uh, Simon and his colleagues attempted to d- extract DNA from 61 individuals from the Rahigari Cemetery and were successful with only Man, one. Man, I bet they were so thrilled when that one worked. <laughs> can, oh, yeah. can imagine. Um, the first revelation from the ancient gene sequences was that some of the inhabitants of the Indus Valley are connected by a genetic thread to modern day South Asians. Um, one of the research- researchers said, quote, "About two thirds to three fourths of the ancestry of all modern South Asians comes from a population group related to that of this Indus Valley individual." Yeah. Um, this is awesome. Yeah, this is so awesome because also there's like all of that like DNA. Well, not all of it. There's some DNA research that's been done on folks uh, buried um, there in the like in the Bronze Age. Uh-huh. So. In this time that the Indus Valley uh, civilizations are popping off, um, like folks who are buried in um, southern Mesopotamia or in um Arabia or on in what's now Bahrain, mm-hmm. where like you have evidence of Indus Valley. Um, civilization influence. Yes. Somebody in from Ur, the culture. Right? Somebody from the yeah. Death well, pit was... like like Puabi. Yeah, yeah. The herself queen. Yes, 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 is yes. thought to be, um, is is thought to be like from the IVC. <laughs> um, like she has like. You down with <laughs> yeah, IVC? I'm, I'm down with the IVC. Oh god. Um, and so this. So if we are now getting to a point where perhaps there will be more DNA. Um, more of a corpus of DNA. One out of for, sixty-one for this population, <laughs> yeah. we might be able to start figuring out more information around, yeah, demographics and stuff. like human, yeah, demographics and migration and looking at sort of like pluralism in yes. the ancient world. Ah, oh, I'm like I'm getting
0: ah, ch- oh, so excited. A quiver, we oh. are a quiver. Yes. All right. All right. Cuckoo-ca-choo. Let's continue with our last story that was a a relevant noise that I just made because this one's about walruses. So, scientists have used ancient DNA analyses and carbon-14 dating to demonstrate the past existence of a unique population of Icelandic walrus that went extinct shortly after Norse settlement some 1,100 years ago. Walrus hunting and ivory trade was probably the principal cause of extinction, being one of the <laughs> being one of the earliest examples of commercially driven over exploitation of marine resources. Wah, wah. The presence of walruses in Iceland in the past and its apparent disappearance as early as 870 to 1262 CE has long puzzled the scientific world. <laughs> Where'd those walruses go? <laughs> in a study recently published in the journal Molecular Biology and Evolution, scientists from Denmark, Iceland, and Holland the Netherlands. What is this? We don't call it Holland anymore. ScienceDaily.com. Some folks call it Holland. Do they? Okay.
1: Um some yeah, well, one of my Dutch advisors was like, oh I Okay. Like,
0: what? Okay. <laughs> I take it back then. I my At IDK. IDK either. Holland, have addressed the question. No, the Netherlands. The Netherlands <laughs> have addressed the question by analyzing ancient and contemporary DNA, along with carbon-14 dating of walrus remains, supplemented with detailed studies of finding. Can you hear my little walrus? Yeah. She is trying to live in the bathroom cabinets at the moment. I get it. Yeah. Alrighty, righty. Supplemented with detailed studies of finding localities of the remains, place names, and references to walrus hunting in the Icelandic medieval literature, including the Icelandic sagas. Iceland is cool because they have a really super long written history that kind of trails back into an oral history, which kind of trails back into sort of foundation myths. But like, that's neat. Anyway... <laughs> One of the researchers commented, quote, Natural history museum collections provide a remarkable window into the past, which, with modern-day technology, allow us to explore the past effects of human activities and environmental change on species and ecosystems. This can further be put into context by studying the Icelandic medieval literature, historic place names, and zooarchaeological sites. End quote. The scientists used carbon-14 dating of walrus remains found in Iceland to reveal that walrus says, Walrus? Is the plural of walrus... Walrus. Maybe it's Walrus. Walrus. And Maybe it, it's like a fourth, fourth declension. De- de- oh yeah. I'm going to shove you in a locker. Ah. <laughs> no. uh, that Wal-Rus, Walrus inhabited Iceland for thousands of years, but disappeared shortly after the country's settlement around 870 AD or CE by the Norse. DNA was extracted from natural finding sites and archaeological excavations of walrus samples and compared to data from contemporary walruses. Duck- <laughs> contemporary walruses? They're just, it's like metrosexual walruses. Documenting that the Icelandic walrus constituted a genetically unique lineage distinct from all other historic and contemporary walrus populations in the North Atlantic. Interesting walrus ivory was a luxury good in high demand and widely traded across Viking Age and medieval Europe with beautifully ornamented tusks documented as far away as the Middle East and India no walruses in India most examples of trade and human over-exploitation and extinction of local marine resources are of much more recent date such as overfishing and commercial whaling for the past three centuries or so and now the best part of this article which ended with facts about the walrus <laughs> okay true facts about the walrus the walrus oh, odo, what was that that wasn't morgan it, it was, wasn't was no like, it
1: wasn't that was like a mid-atlantic like a weird like, <sighs> say uh, oh that's that's the accent of uh and
0: blank oh savagnin blank attorney at law <laughs> yeah say, my say, mister <laughs> wait no he's from the 1950s the walrus odo bennis Rosemaris. Grows up to three meters in length. Oh, it could fit inside that Scottish drinking <laughs> <bowl>. <laughs> Great. <laughs> uh, and they live up to 40 years. The male weighs up to 1,500 kilograms. That is a ton and a half of walrus. While the female is slightly smaller. <laughs> Okay. Both males and females. Well, you know, a lady doesn't. A lady She's got to watch her tell. figure. So. <laughs> uh, both males and females have tusks, uh, which is unusual for instances of sexual dimorphism like that. The walrus occurs throughout the Arctic, divided into two subspecies, the Atlantic and Pacific walrus. Okay. The Atlantic walrus, to which the Icelandic uh, subpopulation belonged, numbers approximately 30,000 animals Uh, today and occurs in northeastern Canada, Greenland, Svalbard, and northwestern Russia. And that was facts about the walrus.
1: I was expecting more. I
0: know, and it ended it had three facts, but the final fact was actually about, like, Norse populations. And I was like, that's not about walrus! That's people! Anyway, uh, with that, we will conclude our roundup for this month. We will be back very, very soon with your regularly scheduled weekly shows and more of your extra monthly content. Woo.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for listening today and always. And as, well, thank you so much, so, so much for supporting the show and for bearing with us or walrusing with us while we <laughs> attempt to keep up our production schedule after our switch to the APN. Yes. Thank you. We're at now. You guys you so are much. the best. Ah, uh, The best. All right. Bye. Goodbye.